pardon me for not having this all ready. There we go. I forgot about it till just a moment ago. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Daniel, the sixth chapter. Daniel chapter 6. I want to talk with you for a little while about the qualities or characteristics of an ungodly life. Uh, there are all kinds of people in the world. Uh, I'm talking about the good and the bad. There are some who are extremely righteous, some who are moderately righteous, some who are motivated righteous. Some are righteous just because that's the way they were raised. That doesn't mean anything to them. They just kind of live by a certain standard of life. And the same is true, I guess, of the ungodly. There are all kinds of ungodly people. There are some that are really bad and some that are just sort of bad. And generalizations, and I'm going to generalize a little bit here, don't often account for all of these variations in the quality of our life. And I do believe that competition can be healthy, but sometimes too much competition can be a bad thing. And in Daniel chapter 6, uh, we're talking about Daniel in the, uh, the time of the Persians. And, and he's the head of all of the governors except for the king and the king's family. And he's done real well. And let's just, let me just read with you the first part of Daniel chapter 6. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners of whom Daniel was one, and these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and the satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, and they couldn't. They couldn't find any ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. And then they conclude the only way we're going to ever get anywhere is by finding something against him in relationship to his God. And I find this competition to be unhealthy. And I'm going to talk with you about that for a little while this morning. Uh, if we're talking about the qualities or characteristics of an ungodly life, one of the first ones I suggest to you here is that it depends on the externals. It's this out here that matters more than what's in here. And you understand that. Daniel got a promotion. And these guys didn't. And you'll find this true, I think, just about anywhere. It's going to be true in the business world. Uh, there are some who will stab you in the back to get ahead. You'll find it in school with competition with grades and things like that. Maybe not in high school so much as you will in college. I made a 90, had a 98 average once in a class and got a B. How do you make a 98 and get a B? The only time in my academic career, limited as it was, that I ever talked with a professor about my grade. He said, I can't give everybody in here A's. Somebody's got to get a B, and I got a B. I didn't deserve a B. I deserved an A, and I wanted it, and I didn't get it. And it kind of irritated me. 
changed my whole outlook toward this man. I liked him. He was a good teacher, but he gave me a B. And that's unthinkable. How can he do something like that? He thought it was the right thing to do, I guess. Well, here's this competition. Daniel got the promotion. He made the A. These guys got Bs. And it's the external, don't you understand? Happiness depends on power and position and money, not on character, not on who we are. And that makes a big difference in this world. They had power and position and money. I mean, in the, in the whole kingdom of the Persians, and it's a tremendous empire. There are 120, and then there are three. And if I'm one of the commissioners, I'm going to feel good about that. I've got a good life. I've got power. I've got money. I've got position. Yeah, but Daniel has more than we do. And it's not fair. It's not fair because I ought to get more. I deserve that. I think Daniel has a different standard than the rest of them had. It seems to me that in all of this, he has a relationship with God that transcends anything that power and money and position are going to be able to accomplish for us. In the book of Luke, the ninth chapter, verse 58, it's just Jesus saying, uh, if you want to follow me, we have to understand the foxes have holes in the ground and the birds have nests and the Son of Man doesn't have where to lay his head. Where would you put Jesus out here in this world? He doesn't have a home. He doesn't have anywhere to call his own. I, we were talking about this in class a little bit before class started. I like my bed. I think it's the most comfortable bed in the world. I'm not crazy about my pillow. It's a little bit soft. Somewhere in the house there is a better one, and I'm going to find it because it needs to be on my side of the bed, and I want it to fit me. Jesus didn't have any of that. In the book of Philippians, the fourth chapter, verse 11, uh, and the verses following that, Paul's going to talk about contentment. He said, I've learned to be abased, and I know how to abound. I know how to have everything and get along well with it, and I know how to do without. I've learned the secret. Then he shares with every one of us contentment. Be content with what you have. Because I can say, if God is with me, it doesn't matter what happens out here in this world. Let me share with you a couple of thoughts from the book of Ecclesiastes. I, I think the writer is talking about this, this concept in Ecclesiastes, the fourth chapter. And verse 6, the, hand of, the handful of rest is better than two fistful of labor and striving after wind. Now, I... I think we, we talked about a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Well, this is a little bit different. I, I, I'll be satisfied with just a little if I can have rest. Rather than a whole bunch of stuff I can grab and grab and grab and grab and grab. In the fifth chapter, I think he says it clearer. Beginning in verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is a vanity. This too is worthless. It's empty. It's striving after wind. If you want money more than anything else, you can have it. But it won't give you anything that's worthwhile. 
He goes on in verse 11. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what's the advantage of the owners except to look at it? If you own a business and it's doing well so that you have to hire people to work for you and people to work for you and people to work for you, you're going to have to pay each one of them and you still don't end up with anything more than you had to start with, but you can look at your company that you built and you can see that you're not providing jobs for all of these people. You can see that they work for you. And it's all about you and the increase that you have. In verse 12, the sleep of a working man is pleasant, whether he's eaten much or little, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. Do you see what's going on here? You can have and have and have, and if you don't enjoy, then you've got nothing. And I think here's the problem with these people to start with is that their happiness is dependent on externals. It's what goes on out here that really counts, not who we are inside. And it's a life of turmoil. Now, all life has turmoil. I've had my share. You've had your share. If we want to talk about this, we'll meet this afternoon or tomorrow and we can just cry on each other's shoulder about all the bad things that have happened through us in life that we didn't deserve. But some life creates its own sense of turmoil. I had a friend a number of years ago, well, an acquaintance, I guess, more than a friend. He dropped out of college after his first year. He was a poor student. Didn't accomplish much in the classroom, but... Uh, he just decided somewhere back through the years that he was going to become a businessman. And he did. He started a junkyard in the early 70s, and he dealt only with Toyotas and Hondas. Now, that's back when, back when Nissan was called a Datsun. And those of you who are older in years understand that in the beginning, these, the best cars in America now, were pieces of junk. You didn't want one. I don't care if the gas mileage was a little bit better than American-made cars. You just didn't want one of those things because they didn't hold up. Well, he started this junkyard just buying wrecks, tearing them apart, selling the parts all across the country, and eventually all across the world. He retired 25 years ago as a multimillionaire. Did a little better than I thought he would. Did a whole lot better than I'm doing. But here's some of the turmoil that he got into. Selling car parts in South America. I was talking to him one day and he said, yep, gonna have to go down there because they're robbing me blind. I'll send the parts through the mail however you send a part for a car. And it's stolen, it's stolen, it's stolen. He said, now a little bit of pilfering I can tolerate, but when it gets past the breaking point, I go down with two of my Hispanic guys and we fire a couple of them and we chew a couple of them out. Now that's what's happening here in this passage. That the king might not suffer too much loss. We've appointed people over this deal they're going to oversee the country, and there are three that are going to be over everybody to make sure the king doesn't suffer too much loss because all of this is mine, the king thinks. And the 120 are thinking, I can take a little bit and he'll never notice it. 
I can take a little bit more and he'll never notice it until it gets to be too much and then I'm going to get fired. And they just wander around all the time thinking about, am I going to get caught today? And then there are these three commissioners of whom Daniel is the chief that are worried about the same thing. They can take a little, I can take a little bit more. Uh, let me read with you this passage in the book of James. James, the third chapter. James is a rich book. James chapter 3, verse 14. If you have bitter jealousy and, fact, and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not which comes down from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder. And I want you to notice these next words. And every evil thing. If my life is governed by jealousy and ambition, selfish ambition, it's not going to stop there. Any kind of evil you can think about is going to happen next. Any kind of evil I'm going to steal, I may kill if it becomes necessary. Whatever is out there, if it's based on jealousy and selfish ambition. This is a life of turmoil. And I think God has said this to us in the long ago so that we can understand it. These guys had the opportunity of a lifetime in all of the land of Persia. Other than the king's family, these three men had it made. It's the good life. They've got everything. They live in a mansion. They didn't drive the best cars because they didn't have them back then. But we've got horses to ride. We've got chariots to pull us. We've just got everything. And they couldn't live the good life because Daniel's doing better than we are. And it's turmoil. And it doesn't stop there. Because we can't have it. We can't have Daniel being above us. We're going to find something. And what they do is say the only way we're going to get him is in some relation to his God. Uh, let's get the king to pass an edict. That nobody can make a petition of any man or God other than you, king. Now, there are a lot of contradictory concepts back here. Uh, this king admires Daniel. I think he's inherited Daniel from the Babylonians. The Persians have kicked the Babylonians out of power. But they understand they've got an empire to rule over. And who in Babylon? can we look at that's going to be worthy and Daniel is the best and we've incorporated him into our power structure and I like Daniel and the king wasn't thinking and he signed this edict that cannot be reversed that anybody who does anything and makes an appeal to anybody other than King Darius is going into the lion's den and Daniel does. He will not break his vows to God. And so he goes into his room and kneels three times a day with a window open toward Jerusalem. And he prays toward Jerusalem. And these men come back to the king and say, Ha, Daniel, 
You've got to cast him into the lion's den. The king didn't like that. I don't know why he didn't anticipate that Daniel is one of these guys. But he didn't. We're going to put him in the lion's den. The king stays up all night long. Anxious, worried. What's going to happen to Daniel? Will the lions eat him? Will his God be able to save him? How do you think he felt then toward the other two guys who were commissioners? I don't think it's good. They made me kill Daniel. Things are going to go bad for these guys, and I will see to it. I'm the king. I can pass any edict I want to. I can't reverse the one that put Daniel in the lion's den, but I can get rid of these guys. And here is this turmoil. Every life has turmoil of its own, but some life creates its own turmoil. And that's what these men are doing. Turmoil in life. Think back about Philippians 4 and the concept of contentment. These men had everything a mind could want except the bitter envy and jealousy that created every evil thing that's going to happen to them. This life rejoices in evil. Their plot worked, at least for a little while. Daniel goes in the lion's den. The king's worried all night long. He comes the next morning, I guess, without breakfast, just to see what's going to happen. Daniel, are you still alive? Are you still there? I'm fine. My God has closed, closed the mouths of the lions. Here's an innocent man who's going to die, and these men didn't care because they won. They got their way. Can you imagine their celebration when Daniel goes in the lion's den? And their chagrin the next day when he's alive? I wonder if they were worried then about what's going to happen to them. I wonder about what's going to happen to them if Daniel had been eaten by the lions. Okay, it's just the two of us. Maybe there was a third by then. Who's going to be next? Who's going to be next? And here's the turmoil you get to in a life like that that rejoices in this sense of evil without thinking it's going to happen to me, it's going to happen to me. Somewhere back through the years there was this uh, proverb, I guess, heavy hangs the head of the man who wears the crown. I can't tell you how many times in France and England and Italy and, and anywhere else where there was a kingdom that kings have been poisoned or executed in some way by their own children, by their enemies. It's why they had to have food tasters to see if it's poisoned or not. Will I be next? Will I be next? If I rejoice in evil, it's going to come back to haunt me. An ungodly life results in ruin. And I think we need to understand that. Were they going into the lion's den next? Yes. Because the king saw to it 
What if they'd been spared? If they'd been spared the lion's den, if Daniel comes out of it alive and he says all is forgiven and the king agrees with him, do you think it's going to be over for them? I think not. I think there'll be another plot. Maybe not that year, but the next one. It takes us a little while to get over the, 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 the fear and anxiety that comes from the wrong things that we do. What if they'd been spared? I don't think it would have mattered a whole lot because they're still going to be dominated by jealousy and bitterness. I've got to get him. I've got to get him. I deserve the promotion. I deserve. I deserve. And I just think it must be terrible to be some people governed by that kind of attitude. There is no sense of peace. There is no sense of comfort. There are no moments of happiness. There's just this sense of turmoil in their life. That does not look attractive to me. What about the families? And I ask you this, not because of those people, but because of our families. Daniel 6.24, these other commissioners are cast into the lion's den. And then he goes and gets their families. I don't know exactly how it works. I think if I were the king, I'd want the men to suffer. And I would have brought their families, their wives and children, and cast them to the lions first and then throw these men in so they can see the devastation and destruction that happens to people who act without regard for human life. Ours don't go in the lion's den. They just go to the dogs. Children. You understand? Are raised in an atmosphere. An atmosphere of whatever we determine as parents. Of a sense of honor. A sense of justice. A sense of love for God. Are they raised in an atmosphere of unhealthy competition? I'm going to get ahead. I'm going to get ahead. What do they hear us talking about around the dinner table? Assuming that we still gather around the dinner table, uh, we talk about what happened during the day in our family. There were no dirty jokes. There were no bad words. And I'm not saying that they were raised perfectly because my kids were kids. And they had friends at school and they had friends outside school. I'm just asking what we provided for them at home. A sense of honor, a sense of justice. I would like to think a sense of peace and security within our family. I didn't want them raised as thieves or as murderers or as evildoers or meddlers in other men's matters. We wanted them raised a certain way and we did what we could. And we didn't do it flawlessly because they saw some bad happen at home like everybody else. But these children of these men 
grew up listening to their dad complain about somebody else got something better than I did. We're one of the three or four richest families in the country. But somebody got more and more, and it's not right. And the kids are going to grow up learning the same way. I don't know this is why they're cast into the lion's den as well. But I wouldn't be surprised if Darius is sitting up here thinking, if I don't execute them, they're going to come back and turn on me when they grow up. I don't know that this is why God told the Israelites when you go into the promised land, I want everybody there killed. Because the children grow up in the image of their parents from a very early age. And I wonder what mine really saw and thought as they exited our household and went off into the world. They're raised by my thoughts and my principles and Anita's. And somewhere along the line, they'll make their own choice. And it seems to me that the ungodly never see this until it's too late. And I'd like for it not to be too late for me and for you in the raising of our children. These are qualities, characteristics of an ungodly life. And I want us to practice godliness and to learn the sense of honor, a sense of justice, a sense of love and forgiveness so that they can be more like Daniel and less like the people that put him in the lion's den. I want to offer you at this time the invitation of our Father. If you're a Christian... That's wonderful. If you're not a Christian, you can become one today. I won't say before it's everlastingly too late. I think we'll maybe have tomorrow, and maybe the day after that, and maybe the day after that. But eventually, we'll stand before God and give an answer for the deeds done in this flesh. And if you want your sins forgiven, you need to begin now to be obedient to the Father in heaven. If you need to respond in some public way to the gospel call, we'll encourage you to come while we stand in the same.